Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Rational Policy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Cote. Thank you so much for joining us today. This episode is our seventh, so if you've been along for the whole ride, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving, everybody, and uh, really were able to celebrate the holiday in the true style. Uh, Gratitude, football, family, friends, pretty much everything that America's about. I did actually write about Thanksgiving recently, so if you're interested in more of my thoughts on the holiday and why it really is part of the American tradition, uh, uniquely so, as a matter of fact, and why it should really be your favorite holiday, check out my blog over at rationalpolicy.com. I also had it up on ordinarytimes.com as well, another place where I post my work. This episode, what we'll be doing is another version of our foreign telegram series. Basically, if you did not listen to the first one, what this will be doing, I'll be rounding up three major international news stories from the past week or two, be discussing what's important about them, giving you a bit of information about them, and kind of bouncing from one to the other to give you an overview of really what's been going on in the world over the past few weeks. In this case, we're going to be covering three topics. We're covering the continuing protests in Iran, Uh, something I did cover as well on the first version of the Foreign Telegram. I'm very glad to be covering it again, partially because that means the protests are still ongoing, uh, which is all credit due to the brave Iranian people who are out on the streets protesting that despicable regime. The second story we'll be touching on uh, are the updates on the war in Ukraine. Uh, Russia obviously has been invaded Ukraine back in 2014 first, and then revamped and went back in to Ukraine this year, earlier in February 2022. I actually believe, I think it's February 24th. So at this point, we are over, what, nine months at this point. So uh, it's incredible. Most people didn't think that war would last more than a few weeks, myself included. I'm very, very glad to be proven wrong in that circumstance. We'll be giving the update on that. And then finally, we're going to round out the podcast with our last topic of discussion, uh, which is a coverage of the COP27 World Climate Change Conference. This is a conference that was held in Egypt, and uh, many nations from around the world participated and discussed what to do about the threat of climate change. So I'm sure you'll be very excited to hear that one, but I am going to save that one for last. And now without further ado, on to our first segment. Our first topic on this foreign telegram is the protest movement currently roiling Iran. If you listened to my previous foreign telegram back in October, I think that was episode three if you want to check it out, we did speak about the protest movement. I've also written about it a bit uh, on my blog and the post called Third Times the Charm. To give you a bit of an overview, if you don't want to check out those pieces or those podcast episodes right now, What happened is there was a major protest movement that has broken out across the country of Iran after the killing of a young girl, uh, 22 years old, I believe, named Masa Amini, for the quote-unquote crime of inappropriate hijab. Obviously, in most countries, this would not be considered a crime, and it's especially heinous and horrible that she was essentially beaten to death because of it uh, by the regime forces. That protest movement, although it's more than a month later, and I think over two months now that the protests have been going on, are still going, uh, and they're going strong, which is something that is surprising. 
uh, especially given the lack of outside support and intervention, obviously, in Iran, something that is not probably going to happen with respect to these protests. People have stayed out in the streets now for several weeks, if not months, and they've been basically going out and calling for not only more liberalization, uh, democratic response politically, uh, but also more economic freedom and freedom uh, for women especially. And what they're doing is directly calling for the destruction of the Iranian regime. That's something that is considered treasonous by the Iranian government. People have been put to death for it before, and as we'll talk about in just a bit, unfortunately people may be put to death for it once again. The protest movement is still going strong all around the country, and it's really, at this point, I think, threatening the stability of the regime overall. There have been crackdowns on these protests, as one would imagine, given how disruptive they've been and how destructive they've been to the image of the theocracy in Tehran as basically the be-all end-all of Islamic governance. As you might expect, the crackdowns uh, on these protests by the regime have been quite harsh, including the death penalty being leveled out to some protesters. The Ayatollah himself, uh, the leader of the Iranian government, the chief theocrat in Tehran, has praised these crackdowns, uh, obviously, I'm assuming, making sense because he was the one who had orchestrated them in the first place. And he's actually now bringing in the regular military and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps to aid the regime police, the volunteer uh, Basij regiments. These regiments have often been the ones that are called out to really crack skulls on behalf of the Islamic Republic, and essentially are the handmaidens of the theocratic regime in cracking down on all sorts of internal dissent and protest. The Ayatollah himself, uh, in a speech that he was giving recently, said that the Basij should not forget that the main clash is with global hegemony. Clearly, he's referring to the United States, who he is blaming for these protests. Obviously, this was something I spoke about in our last uh, foreign telegram, but the United States was going to get blamed for these protests no matter what. That's what the Iranian regime does. It blames the United States for things that go wrong internally with its own governance. Not shocking that that happened, obviously, but we should not be running our policy based on what the Iranian government is going to smear its own citizens as being. He also, uh, later in that address, echoed some of his previous statements, basically saying that there was a foreign plot afoot trying to destabilize Iran, again blaming the United States. He also said that the Basij forces, quote, sacrificed themselves in order to save people from a bunch of rioters and mercenaries. They sacrificed themselves in order to confront oppression. It's completely insane when you hear this, because obviously what he's talking about is these thugs going in and attacking protesters on the street who are trying to get the freedoms we all deserve as human beings. And what they're doing is carrying out the will of the mullahs, and disrupting these protests with force, basically killing and maiming their own people, their own fellow countrymen, in order to stave off threats to a corrupt autocratic regime. The fact that one could call that confronting oppression, when it is in fact enforcing very real oppression, uh, is completely ridiculous. As before, there are still women leading these protests all across Iran, 
At this point, they've spread rapidly throughout the country. There are protests throughout, including in Tehran itself, as well as in various outlying provinces, including in very uh, large cities like Isfahan and Qom. Iranian athletes have been speaking out against the regime and for protesters. This is something that's obviously quite important right now as Iran is playing in the World Cup, the first in the Middle East, in Qatar, which is, as we'll say in a little bit, one of Iran's allies and its close neighbor. I did write a little while ago about how I'm not watching this World Cup, and if you value freedom, you should not watch it either. Uh, You can check out that piece over at rationalpolicy.com. But given that the World Cup has such a global prominence, and given that Iran is in it, uh, something, a fact there for which they are very proud, uh, this is coming up quite a bit. Usually Iranian athletes are heavily controlled, both in Iran and in other countries, so that they don't speak out and say something wrong against the regime. In this case, uh, there are many Iranian soccer players who are speaking out, including some uh, who are really taking big risks doing so, whether they'll be able to return, uh, and as we'll see in a bit, whether their families will be safe. One defender, uh, Vorya Gafuri, who plays for the Khuzestan Fulad soccer team internal to Iran, was arrested, actually, on charges of, quote, dishonorable and insulting comportment towards Iran's national soccer team. Uh, Their FARS news agency, which is the state news agency in Iran, said that Gafuri had some harsh reactions in support of the recent rioters and was inciting them. Realistically, this is essentially uh, the regime silencing a critic, someone who is saying that these protests should be able to go on, and basically expressing normal levels of sympathy with these protesters, and that is obviously not an uncommon thing, as we've seen these protests only grow and expand over the past several months. The World Cup soccer team, the one that's there right now in Qatar, uh, did not sing their national anthem when it was played before their first game. This may not seem like a big deal. You know, sometimes when we're used to the national anthem being played before games, and there's lots of times where you'll see when they're panning across the athletes that, you know, a few of them aren't singing it just because they're either in the mode for the game or, or they're just, their minds are elsewhere. In this case, nobody on the Iranian men's soccer team sung the anthem which was something that uh, really did catch my eye, as well as the eye of other people who were observing the situation. This was clearly something that was decided in advance, and basically a silent form of protest against the regime. Uh, That's something, again, that's quite ballsy, especially because as of now, Iran is threatening the families of these World Cup players for, quote, misbehavior. They've been threatened with actually imprisonment and torture, Uh, if the players fail to, quote, behave ahead of the match against the United States, uh, which is going to be happening this Tuesday, November 29th. Uh, That's according to CNN. So clearly, we'll see what happens with respect to that, whether they are penalized uh, by the regime for speaking out, or in the previous case, not speaking at all. Another sort of uh, minor protest that really is major when you look at it was done by the Iranian women's basketball team. Uh, They took a team photo at an international competition where none of them were wearing the compulsory hijab. That is something, again, that is a novel approach and really does show that these athletes 
who oftentimes are treated as, you know, celebrities by the regime and used to promote their ideology, are really standing up for their fellow countrymen. Besides these athletes, other things have been going on that have really been quite shocking. One was uh, the burning down of the former home of the Ayatollah Khomeini, the founder of the Islamic Republic after the 1979 revolution, which deposed the Shah. That house, uh, obviously he had passed uh, quite some time ago, I believe back in the 80s, but his house was transformed into a museum, kind of like how we have presidential museums, except much more evil. Uh, And that was actually burned down by protesters uh, while they were chanting death to Ali Khamenei, who was his successor and the current Ayatollah of Iran. This is a big deal. Uh, Attacking such a symbolic building, monument to the founder of the Iranian Revolution, really kind of takes it up a notch. Uh, And obviously that's permanent, you know, burning down this structure that is only really important because an important man was born in it and lived there really does show that there's a lot of people in Iran who are not planning to go back to how things were going before all of these protests erupted. And if you can even believe it, something completely crazy happened. I'm going to say something positive about the United Nations Human Rights Council. I know, I know, I'll I'll give you a minute to take that in. Uh, I am someone who is quite against the United Nations Human Rights Council. Uh, It's kind of a ridiculous name for a group of the worst human rights abusers on the planet. But I will give them credit where credit is due. Last week, they voted to open an investigation, a fact-finding mission, into the Iranian regime's crackdown on these protesters. It's really something that I did not think would come out of such a uh, corrupt body as that, especially one that often has many serial human rights abusers themselves. Obviously, China tried to water it down, not shocking at all, and they and very many of Iran's Islamic neighbors uh, abstained from voting on that. But it did pass, so we'll see what kind of perfunctory review the United Nations Human Rights Council uh, gives this. But again, hey, I got to give it credit. That's something that I would have suggested they do at the minimum, and I'm glad they're at least taking a baby step. Obviously, Qatar uh, did not air this news during the World Cup. Uh, They're basically a cat's paw of the Iranian regime in a lot of ways. Their police internally are actually cracking down on anti-Iranian sentiment, including the wearing of the flag of the Shah's regime, uh, which is considered treasonous by the Islamic Republic of Iran, but Qatar is actually carrying out the wishes of that Islamic Republic. So those who say they might be an ally, including the Biden administration, really should look over that once again. Unfortunately, it does look like this crackdown eventually will be successful. I have high hopes that this will be a lasting uh, indicator of future change in the Iranian regime. But as of now, I'm not exactly sure that it's going to succeed in toppling that regime. It still, it does show real cracks in the regime's strength. And this is something that we should capitalize on here in the United States. We should not be reducing pressure. We should not be seeking conciliation. We should not be doing any sort of nuclear deal with Iran, which thankfully seems to be at least on hold right now. We should be keeping up the pressure. 
We should not allow them to recover, bide their time, strengthen their forces, and really be able to cement their control over Iranian society. One of the good things is the Iranian regime and its major supporters are on the older side. The Ayatollah is in his 80s, he has been sick, and there are not too many successors who are as ideologically motivated or as theocratically um, inclined as the Ayatollah. One of those potential successors was Qasem Soleimani, who was turned into a smear in the concrete on a Baghdad airport road in January 2020. That was a very, very good move on behalf of the Trump administration at the time, uh, just for American foreign policy interests overall. Qasem Soleimani was a terrorist who had killed many American citizens, including our soldiers in Iraq. And killing him really did remove a major tentpole of the regime's ability to continue itself and its ability to export its Islamic revolution abroad. Right now, what we need to do is take advantage of this crisis in Iran. We should really increase the pressure on the regime by increasing our sanctions, by stopping any sort of deal with them on any sort of nuclear issue, and by doing more exercises with the Israelis like we are doing right now, where we are essentially simulating bombing an Iranian nuclear plant. That's something we should continue doing. We should work more with the Israelis and our other allies in the Middle East, especially the Gulf nations, to basically put the pressure on Iran and do as much as we can from the outside to make these protests as successful as they can be. As of now, we'll see what happens, but all of our hearts, our thoughts, our prayers, uh, and our support are with the Iranian people in their quest to have the basic human freedoms that we all aspire to. So we wish them good luck and Godspeed in that effort. And now on to our second topic of discussion in this foreign telegram for November 2022, an update on the war in Ukraine. If you've been following this war at all since uh, February, you'll know it's been a lot of back and forth. Obviously, Russia seemed to be really on the uh, you know high end of things uh, in the beginning of the war. Quickly, we're pushed back. We're unable to take the capital, Kiev, and have uh, since been waging battles against the Ukrainians to take more territory on either end of that spectrum. You've had fighting in the east, the north, and the south of the country. There have been bombings in the west of the country. Uh, it's not at risk of Russian invasion, but it is being targeted heavily by missiles, both in civilian areas, military installations, and infrastructure. Last time we spoke about the war, uh, things were in a state of flux, Ukraine was proceeding with a potential counterattack uh, that had not yet materialized entirely by the time that we had discussed this last month. But as of now, that counterattack has materialized, and boy has it. The Ukrainians have run a major counterattack, a counteroffensive, which has pushed Russia back in many sectors of the country, uh, including the north and the south, as well as somewhat in the east, although that is a bit more of a complicated situation. The major victory for the Ukrainian forces was the recapture of Kherson, the capital of one of the southern regions and an incredibly important city, uh, both for defense and for Ukraine as a state. Kherson Oblast, uh, which is in the south of the country, borders Crimea. Uh, it is 
straddles the Dnipro River, and the city of Kherson, which is the regional capital, uh, is right along that river as well. It's a, quite a large city. Uh, pre-war, it had many different people in it. Uh, pretty sizable, important economically as well, and it does help control some of the ground lines of communication and control uh, farther to the east that the Russians have been relying on to keep control of the territory uh, altogether and protect their bases in the annexed Crimea, which they captured in 2014. For the Russians, keeping Kherson uh, in the beginning of the war was a big deal. It allowed them to halt the Ukrainian advance to the south and the east. It was able to straddle the Dnipro River and push to the west side of that river, which opened up much more of the country to Russian invasions and attacks, and it totally stabilized the situation in Crimea, uh, making sure that troops, supplies, and logistically, uh, it was able to remain out of reach of Ukrainian counterattacks and land artillery batteries. A few weeks back, I did speak about this on our last podcast, one of the regions which Russia annexed, uh, I'm going to put that in air quotes, annexed, uh, clearly it was not something that was legal, as we spoke about on that past foreign telegram. It was something that nobody recognized across the world as being a legitimate annexation. And as of now, Kherson, that new Russian territory that would be forever part of Russia, is back to being part of Ukraine, as it should. At this point, they've withdrawn fully from the city, the Russians, uh, and Ukraine has retaken it. The videos celebrating uh, this amazing recapture of such an important city have been flying around the internet. Uh, they're well worth watching if you haven't yet. Just the joy on the faces of the residents of Kherson, having dealt with a brutal Russian occupation, uh, which often led to people being killed extrajudicially by Russian soldiers. Many of the soldiers, the Ukrainians who liberated the city, were actually residents of that city before the war had started. So it really was a moving scene, and as horrifying as war is, occasionally you do get moments like that, which truly are moving and deeply, deeply human. I would definitely recommend seeking them out if you haven't seen them yet and you're looking for something that's emotional, inspiring, uh, and really shows how much the Ukrainians are in this fight for the long haul. The recapture of Kherson by the Ukrainians happened faster than many people expected. Uh, some people were expecting the Russians to hole up in the city, really reinforce it with as many troops and material as they could, dig in and force the Ukrainians to wage a street-by-street -street urban battle to retake this city. That would have obviously destroyed much of the city itself, uh, in terms of the buildings, the infrastructure, things like that, you can't exactly have a major gun battle or artillery battle in the city without leveling much of it. The Ukrainians have deliberately not been shelling these cities that they're trying to retake, although it would make it slightly easier for them to end up taking those cities, because they're actually interested in having those cities be part of their country in the long term. Russia has had no qualms about absolutely destroying civilian infrastructure which is something we'll talk about in just a little bit. Thankfully, Russia chose not to fight it out in street-by-street -street urban warfare, and what they did is they crossed the river Dnipro 
withdrew behind it and have been setting up more defensible lines outside of the city to the east of the river. The fact that Russia chose not to fight it out within the city of Kherson itself shows a few different things. First off, it shows that they're trying to push for more defensible long-term settlements uh, where they're able to actually hold on to and keep much of Ukrainian territory. Obviously, if they were in Kherson and it was difficult to hold on to, uh, if they lost that city, then they may collapse entirely on that southern front and lose even more territory than they would if they just gave up the city. Another thing it does show is that perhaps the Russians are unable to hold the city uh, through that sort of fighting, whether that's because of a lack of munitions and supply, or the fact that many of the people holding these cities are now Russian reserve troops who have been called up or conscripted by the Russian government. Those conscripted troops often have worse training, uh, worse materiel and weaponry, and really don't know how to handle something as militarily challenging as a prolonged siege of a major city uh, as the defenders. So what they did is the Russians did withdraw, they fell back, uh, we'll talk about that, how that happens across the country and what that portends for the future of this war in just a bit. But sticking with Kherson for now, retaking Kherson by the Ukrainians makes future campaigns far, far harder for Russia. Uh, as they would have to cross the River Dnipro, which is large, and could struggle with supply. Basically, having Kherson in the Ukrainian hands makes it so that Russians are going to have to fall back, and it's going to be much more difficult for them to bring up supplies via Crimea to engage in a future invasion of the country yet again. Difficulty with bridging and crossing rivers has been a constant theme of this Russian campaign in Ukraine, what we've seen over and over again is Russia having quite a bit of difficulty actually having their troops be able to ford or cross these rivers without taking immense casualties, whether that's from Ukrainian drones or air power or just from artillery strikes destroying the bridging equipment. Uh, a few weeks ago, I believe, maybe a few months ago at this point, there was an entire Russian column that was basically lost uh, in the attempt to cross a river. So that having an extra river in between Russia's forces and the Ukrainian defenders does make a big difference, and I think that's something that we should look for in the future. On a broader scale, Russia has been collapsing or withdrawing to more defensible lines uh, in many different parts of the country, whether that's the east, the south, or indeed the north. This is important because as we're approaching the winter season here in the northern hemisphere, what we're going to see is campaigning becoming both more difficult and at some times slightly easier. Again, I'll talk about that just in a little bit, but winter has basically always been in Europe the end of the campaigning season. In modern times, that's been uh, not exactly the same because with mechanized warfare and the ability to use airplanes, um, railroads, things like that to resupply soldiers and positions, there has been more fighting in winter than was traditional. Obviously, back in the Middle Ages, uh, the early modern period, basically people would have to go home to tend their farms, both during the harvest season and during the winter. The winter made it extremely difficult to find forage for horses, which were basically the 
weapons of war of the pre-modern era. And it was very difficult to have an enormous army camped out outside of a city or in a permanent camp if they had uh, lack of supplies, whether it's from the surrounding area, the crops they'd be able to steal, or whether it was shipped in from farther away. So traditionally, winter has really been a time for retrenchment and preparing for the future campaign season in the spring. Still, there is possibility for future campaigning this winter. As you may know, the war itself did start in late February. Right now, Russia has called up many reinforcements in a mobilization, as we've spoken about, or I'm sure you may have read about. So far, those reinforcements have not been supremely effective. But the important thing with respect to calling up reserve soldiers or conscripting people is time. Time not only to train and to show these non-professional soldiers, essentially, how to operate in professional soldiering units, uh, but also to be able to build up supply and to build up the weaponry and ammunition that would be needed for these large um, transfer of human soldiers to actually be effective on the battlefield. Right now, Russia would may be able to, if they're able to establish more defensive lines, use the winter to train and equip these conscripts so as to be able to make a much larger offensive once the spring comes. But right now, especially in the east of the country, near a place called Bakhmut, as well as in other portions of that area, we're seeing entrenchment and defensive fortifications in Europe like we really haven't seen in quite some time. Eastern Ukraine is really, to me, uh, for someone who's studied World War I quite a bit, it's looking more and more like Flanders every day. You're seeing trenches, deep trenches, crisscrossing the territory uh, with built-in dugouts, not these are not just holes that people have dug to be in temporarily these are well-designed trench networks that are reinforced with both wood and concrete uh, that have drainage so as to avoid the dreaded trench foot but essentially what we're seeing is a return to static positional warfare in a way that many of us have not seen in europe in our lifetimes world war ii was much more a war of mobilization and of movement Obviously, there were times where there were prolonged sieges, as in Stalingrad, but for the most part, it was a war of movement. Uh, Nazi Germany overran Western Europe, overran Eastern Europe, and then was pushed back in both instances. In World War I, especially on the Western Front, the lines that were set in the fall of 1914 essentially lasted until the summer of 1918. This is seeming more like that sort of conflict than the World War II-type conflict, one of movement and motion and constant capturing and recapturing of areas. But we will see, and time will tell with respect to that. Another thing that makes Eastern Ukraine right now feel very World War I-y to me is the freezing cold and the mud. Uh, Ukraine is known for its mud. Uh, it's known for its cold, especially in the winters, being a largely steppe, plateau sort of landscape. You get driving winds, you get fierce rains, and you don't really have much in the way of natural barriers to hide behind or to reinforce. That's one of the reasons we're seeing so much entrenchment. Russia will probably have an easier time with their defense than they would with attacking. 
obviously, as we've seen, Russia was able to overrun uh, good portions of Ukraine early on in the war, but basically have been stuck since then, and the Ukrainians have been steadily pushing them back in various theaters. Russia right now, especially if they're able to firmly entrench and hold on to specific areas that they're interested in fortifying, may have an easier time defending and repulsing Ukrainian counterattacks than they otherwise would trying to take cities that Ukraine already holds on to. Weather is really going to be a major, major factor in the future of this war, especially over the next few months. As I've said, Ukraine notoriously has quite difficult winters, uh, and they have quite a bit of snow, mud, freezing rain, things like that. The weather in this case could both hamper or accelerate a campaign. We don't really know, and the conditions on the ground will be shifting uh, all the time. But there's multiple ways they could do both. So let's talk first about how it could hamper a potential campaign, either defensively or offensively. The cold, the muddiness, generally tends to reduce morale among soldiers. It makes it more difficult and sloppy to get around, especially if the mud is not frozen. Mechanized vehicles, especially trucks, things like that with traditional wheels like we have, uh, not half tracks or full tracks like tanks. We're seeing them get stuck in the mud, spin their wheels quite a bit. This was something that is obviously quite common in World War I. Once uh, mechanized armies got on the move, there were major, major issues with respect to things getting stuck in the mud. That does seem to be happening to a degree right now for both the Ukrainians and the Russians. Uh, if you look online, various accounts have videos, and you might see some of these artillery pieces getting stuck in the mud or being difficult uh, to maneuver. In another way, however, the cold could actually benefit campaigning. The freezing part of the uh, winter, as cold as it gets there, the mud actually may freeze, as would some of the rivers like the Dnipro. And what that could allow is actually accelerated campaigning. Uh, because if you have hardened frozen ground and hardened frozen rivers, you're able to cross territory much more easily than you would either in the spring or fall when things are slightly warmer, muddier, muckier, and the rivers are unfrozen. So moving behind the River Dnipro for the Russians was a good strategic defensive move, but depending on the weather, that may not end up providing as much of a natural barrier as they would have hoped. Uh, as if the river is frozen, it's much easier for bridging operations, it's much easier to cross, and uh, one may be able to move heavy artillery or heavy uh, vehicles much easier than they would if it was worse in terms of muddiness or a flowing river. As I've said, these sorts of moves by Ukraine are happening across the country, the north, the south, and the east. The east is where the Russians are holding out the most, uh, fighting against the Ukrainians uh, quite hard. That is for multiple reasons, one of which is because those areas are replete with separatism. Uh, so you will have many people who are supported by the Russian military who are more local forces that are fighting alongside the Russians and against Ukraine. Another thing that makes it a little bit easier in the east is the networks of supply and command and control. Eastern Ukraine borders Russia on many different sides, Oh, and the sides that it doesn't border Russia, it borders Belarus, which is essentially a client state of Russia. And what we're seeing in the east is much more of a slow slog. You'll get cities being captured or retaken, but oftentimes these are short jumps 
um, in terms of territorial control versus large uh, takeovers of big, big areas. Russia has not been sitting back on its heels and doing nothing, however, besides defending many of its positions in the east and entrenching in the north and the south. It has been striking back against Ukrainian targets by launching major aerial campaigns against critical infrastructure. At this point, it's plunged most of the country into utter darkness without heat, just as winter rolls in. This is essentially a strategy meant to break Ukrainian resolve, to inflict significant costs on the civilian population, make it harder for them to remain in the fight or even in the country at all. Uh, What they hope, I believe, is to create refugee crises on Ukraine's western borders, make it so that Ukrainian civilians are not remaining in the country, uh, making it harder for the economy to continue, making it harder to resupply and to reinforce troops when necessary as well. Shockingly, in comparison to some of the other Russian aerial campaigns, this has actually been carried out quite precisely. Uh, What they're doing is clearly knowing the important parts of the Ukrainian power grid. I'm sure that was something that the Russians have studied very, very carefully in preparation for this war, and they're hitting their targets pretty much spot on. Of course, some of these are causing civilian casualties. That is something that Russia really doesn't seem to care much about. Um, And, you know, just a sidebar right now, I was speaking about this with someone the other day, but none of us in our lifetimes have really seen a war as destructive as this in terms of a major power war, a non-civil war. We're used to the way the U.S. fights wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, we see coverage of Israeli operations in Gaza, and oftentimes we see breathless coverage of these things by human rights organizations saying that, you know, the United States or Israel are deliberately targeting and killing civilians and doing a horrible, horrible job. And if you look at what's happening in Ukraine and what has been happening in Ukraine for the past year or so, you'll see how much of a crock of garbage that really is. The United States and Israel do their best to avoid civilian casualties. Israel, for instance, often drops what they call knock bombs on top of buildings so that they can warn the people inside to get out before they actually carry out a major strike. The United States has done everything in its power, essentially, to avoid civilian casualties. And of course, these things will happen, and there have been major mistakes and atrocities that have been committed by both of these nations. But the fact that they're trying is just light years different from what Russia is doing right now, deliberately trying to inflict civilian casualties, deliberately trying to destroy critical infrastructure, deliberately committing mass killings, deliberately removing Ukrainian children and deporting them to Russia to live with Russian families. These are things that we haven't seen in a long time. This is an earlier era of warfare that we're we're seeing right now. And many of us haven't seen it in our lifetimes. But I think we would do well to remember that this is what warfare is like and has been like for the vast majority of human history. The way that the West fights modern wars is the outlier. So back to Russia taking out this Ukrainian infrastructure. They've obviously attacked major points in the power grid. They've basically put much of Western Ukraine uh, in the dark. Obviously, areas that were constantly being fought over were kind of already in the dark. But now areas behind the front lines uh, are much more, you know, being targeted right now. 
And these targeting strikes are, are quite accurate. Uh, again, this is something that has not been commonplace for the Russian military during this war, but this is the one thing they seem to have been able to carry out competently, which is quite unfortunate given the devastating effect it has on uh, humanitarian aid and on the Ukrainian civilians. But the key here is, will this break Ukraine's resolve? Personally, I don't think it will. I think what we've seen with the images coming out of Kherson and with the general rhetoric and the ability of Ukrainian civilians throughout the country to fight back and to do what they need to, to sacrifice what they need to, to support their country, uh, has really been inspiring. And I don't think that cold or darkness will end that sort of uh, fighting spirit, especially if the West continues to support Ukrainian freedom. The next few months of the conflict really will be crucial. Obviously, that's always how, you know, what people say, but especially as we pass through the winter months, seeing what happens, seeing the way this conflict sets up and plays out, really is uh, a very critical period. I would direct you to the Institute for the Study of War. Uh, check out their website. Just look them up on Google. They have an absolutely amazing daily map of what's happening in Ukraine, the territory that shifts hands. Uh, it's interactive. It's honestly an amazing resource. And if you're interested in day-to-day -day updates, especially as the campaign moves through the winter, I would be sure to check them out. But we'll basically see over these next few months, right? You can even track it on that Institute for Study of War map. And you can see what might be happening. The next few months will really tell us whether this war will be measured in terms of months or in terms of years. Depending on how much territory Ukraine is able to retake, the diplomacy that's happening behind the scenes, the humanitarian efforts to aid Ukrainian civilians, and how the Russian conscription drive actually materializes in reality, we'll see what's going to be happening over the next several months and years of this conflict. My guess is that this conflict will not be one measured in terms of months, unfortunately. I believe it will be measured in terms of years. I do not see there being a major reduction in fighting uh, for several years now. So given that sort of reality, what are the next steps for the West? Uh, we are the ones supporting and arming Ukraine. And what will we do over the next few months? Will we spend more to help Ukraine? What about economic aid versus military aid? And where's Europe in all of this? All of these are really, really key questions that let's get into right now. Western aid and assistance to Ukraine have basically allowed them to stay in the fight. Obviously, Ukrainian resistance and morale has been a major, major part of that. But without the weaponry, the ammunition, the intelligence that the West, especially the United States and our NATO allies, have been able to procure and share with the Ukrainians, they would have a much, much harder time holding back the Russian military. Unfortunately, there are signs that the broader Western public, uh, including here in the U.S., may be tiring of some of the spending, especially without seeing the results in action. As of now, I don't know if you've been paying attention to the news, but the coverage of the war in Ukraine is much, much less frequent and common than it was in the early months of the conflict. You know, that makes perfect sense, obviously. As something has been a news story for quite some time, it tends to be less interesting to many people. But if we're to continue 
helping the Ukrainians in this battle against a horrible Russian invasion, we really do need to convince the population that this is something that is worthwhile. We have sent tons of money in military aid, and it's been really remarkably successful overall. The bang for the buck is absolutely huge. We're dramatically reducing Russian military capabilities while keeping ourselves safe from direct counterattack. The U.S. is not fighting Russia directly in this war. We are not a belligerent party in the war, no matter what other people may like you to believe. First of all, if we were a belligerent party in this war, it would be over already. And secondly, we're not a belligerent party in this war solely by supplying one of the two sides. The U.S. was not a belligerent party in World War I until we joined, because we were supplying mostly the British and the other Western allies. Just because we chose not to supply Germany, that does not necessarily make the United States an actual belligerent or combatant. Russia has basically said directly, whether it's Vladimir Putin, various other commentators, uh, politicians in Russia, they have said outright that the United States, the Western-led world order, is their enemy. Russia has made that clear. We should also make that clear. Russia is our enemy, and we should treat them accordingly. The fact that we're able to weaken one of our main enemies, our main adversaries, so, so deeply on the military front, without actually expending any troops on our own end, is absolutely amazing. For the price that we're paying, we're getting incredible, incredible results. We do, however, need to plan for contingencies, and we need to restock our supplies and those of our allies as soon as possible. Some of our NATO allies, especially, who spend much, much less on defense than we do, unfortunately, basically are running out of ammunition for some of their major equipment that they've been lending or giving to Ukraine. Uh, there's various Western European nations that are running out or running low on ammunition for targeted artillery pieces, um, for cruise missiles, for things like that that they have given the Ukrainians. That's not good. No matter how good of a use these weapons and ammunition are being put to in Ukraine, we should not reduce our own readiness and our defensive strength because of that. So we need to be not running low on this ammunition. You never know what's going to happen in a war, whether it's with respect to Russia or whether it's somewhere else in the world, like in the Middle East or in China. We need to basically reinvest in our militaries not just in crazy new technology, but in the things that are proven to have worked. We're seeing right now what works on the battlefield in Ukraine. Drones, precision munitions, artillery, things like that, cruise missiles, that's what's been super successful on the battlefield. And we need to really revamp our stockpiles. The U.S. is less of a problem here, but most of the rest of the West is struggling with this. They need to invest more, and we need to invest more. We have sent a lot of aid. I think that's a very, very good thing. I am very happy that the Biden administration has done that. But it's often been delayed by the administration, and it's come to the battlefield a bit later than would be absolutely optimal. Obviously, this doesn't seem to have impacted the Ukrainians in the worst possible way, given that they're being fairly successful right now. But they may have been able to have the success earlier if they were able to get some of the important weapons systems that we were 
initially denying them or pushing back. Another spending bill uh, to help the Ukrainians may be coming in the lame duck session of the Congress, which is basically the next few months until the new Congress is sworn in in January. We'll see what happens in that new Congress. Uh, We'll see first if this new spending bill is passed to support Ukraine before that new Congress takes its seats. But in the new Congress, uh, being led by Republicans, we'll see what actually happens with respect to Ukraine aid. There's still a bipartisan consensus on that aid, so my guess is that it will continue to be passed. But we'll have to see. Uh, I think it could be a bigger topic of discussion and a bit more fractious than it has been in the past. And that will just require those of us who know how important it is to really stand up and say our piece and defend it and defend why supporting Ukraine in this war is so important to American national interests. The next phase, really, in helping Ukraine is not just military aid, but economic aid to rebuild the country that has been so devastated by this Russian assault. This part is much more controversial. Personally, I do not think that the U.S. should be paying the bulk of the rebuilding of Ukraine. We are already paying the bulk of the arming of Ukraine. This is something that is our core competency. We are good at destroying stuff with our military. That has always been something that we have been hyper-competent in, I would say. And what we need to do is continue focusing on that and giving Ukraine the things that they need to be able to destroy the Russians as well as possible. The American government really should focus on the military mission in Ukraine and not the civilian mission. They should leave that to civilian authorities in the United States. Basically, what we should be doing in terms of rebuilding aid for the U.S. is that we should be facilitating our public companies, our private companies, to take a lead in doing that, helping with the expertise that we have in financing, the expertise that we have in building, construction, infrastructure, things like that. That sort of expertise is what we should be lending to the Ukrainians. And the people who should be taking the lead on rebuilding is Europe. Europe has largely, and again, we'll talk about this in just a bit because this is a blanket statement where it does not deserve to be a blanket statement, but Europe really has not carried its weight in this conflict. The main nations that have really been most supportive of Ukraine are those on the periphery, whether it's the United States, the United Kingdom, the Baltic states, Poland, and places like that that really do see the threat of Russia as very real. Unfortunately, the Western Europeans, who so often talk a big game, try to lead the European Union and NATO and really want to, you know, show that they're independent of the United States, especially the French and Germans, have shown themselves as utterly unreliable in this conflict. They've been waffling on support for Ukraine, they've been willing to conciliate Russia, whether that's on fuel prices, whether that's on trying to be diplomatic uh, around major, major issues like potential war crimes. These are really, really not strong stand-up allies for Ukraine. And you know what? If they don't want to take the lead on the military part, they don't need to take the lead on the military part. What they must do, however, is take the lead on rebuilding. Ukraine is much more important to the European economy than it is to the American economy, although it is important to our economy as well. Given that, the Europeans should be the ones in charge of rebuilding. I think that's an utterly, utterly uncontroversial statement to make. It should be totally fair. 
And realistically, European leaders should stand up and take over the primary responsibility for handling this conflict. The U.S. should take a back seat in terms of major policy and focus on challenges elsewhere, while at the same time continuing our military support uh, for the Ukrainian fight. We need to stay invested, obviously. As I said, I do think we should continue spending on military aid for Ukraine. But we shouldn't be the biggest player on the field. That is something that we should cede to the Europeans, who are on the front lines of this conflict. As I said, the United Kingdom, Poland, and the Baltic nations really should be the edge of the sword here in terms of running the show on NATO's end. The Western Europeans deserve to be sidelined in respect to that, given how unreliable they've been in this conflict. We should also be integrating the new potential NATO members in Sweden and Finland, and promoting those nations on the front who have done such a great job so far and have skin in the game. Oftentimes you'll hear about NATO's eastern flank, but it's not a flank anymore. It never has been. It's our eastern front. That is where we are lining up with the potential adversary, which is, and has always been in the case of NATO, Russia. Those nations that are on the front lines, who have been doing such a stellar job in supporting the Ukrainians in this fight, should be the ones who take the lead and bring the rest of Europe forward into an attitude of realism and understanding that Russia is not a beneficent ally that will send you natural gas for nothing. It is a potential, if not real, enemy of both freedom and prosperity in the West. The U.S. has other priorities. We have potential flashpoints in China, in the Middle East. These are things that the United States needs to take a lead on. And what we need to do is kind of step back and allow our NATO allies, who are very much aligned with our interests, to take the lead here. This is not disengagement, as some may argue for, but prioritization. We can walk and chew gum at the same time, but we should focus more on the walking right now and put that gum in the back of our mouth. And now for the part you've all been waiting for so patiently. I'm going to be talking about the COP27 climate conference, which, suffice it to say, I was not the biggest fan of. So to give you the overview, the uh, climate conference was a UN-sponsored conference in Egypt, which is in Sharm el-Sheikh, I believe in the south of the Sinai Peninsula. It's a basically a fancy resort town. It's kind of fun, by the way, to host important international events in abusive backwards countries like Egypt and, uh, like, with respect to the World Cup, Qatar. So yeah, that's, that's pretty great. Uh, for all its nostrums about human rights, the UN sure loves cozying up to dictators. Yes, I know, we're allies with Egypt, the US is. But realpolitik, and making friends with people who may not be the best uh, overall because they share your interests, is something that totally makes sense for a nation to do. It doesn't really make much sense for an international institution to do when they're supposed to have universal interests, oftentimes you know, buttressed by something called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was created by the United Nations. Many, many countries were at this conference, uh, but major nations like Russia, China, and India all skipped it, which really kind of puts a lie to them actually caring about climate change shows how little they actually think about this supposed catastrophe that's destroying the world. They're some of the biggest polluters on the planet, and without them actually signing on to reduce pollution for real, there's no point in trying to do anything to stop climate change. 
Uh, it will inexorably continue forward no matter what the West does, given that we are absolutely not the ones contributing to the vast majority of global temperature reduction, uh, increase or pollution. The big news really that came out of this conference was the push for what they called the Loss and Damage Fund, which is essentially climate change reparations for developing countries. This would basically be used to pay off the developing world that are supposedly the most harmed by climate change, and frankly, it would be one of the dumbest possible things that I could imagine, especially as so many of the nations that were pushing specifically for this sort of reparations fund were also pushing for reductions in the stopping of fossil fuel production. Uh, so basically, they want to have their cake and eat it too, and unfortunately, the radical climate activists in the West that so influence our governments bought it hook, line, and sinker. Climate reparations would basically be a brand new way to line the pockets of elite connected government officials in third world nations with no rule of law and major, major corruption. Can you imagine what someone like, you know, he's not, he's not there anymore, but Robert Mugabe would have done with a climate reparations fund? There are so many corrupt autocrats in Africa and other developing nations that we hear so much about. We hear about their big palaces, their private jets, their fancy cars. All that is stolen money from the people of those countries. They are living high on the hog because they're screwing over their own citizens. This climate reparations fund, whatever it would do, would not actually mitigate climate change or help the people who are supposedly affected by it. What it would do was by the leader of Burundi, a new Lamborghini. Basically, these corrupt autocrats are going to be using this as a slush fund for their own benefit. They're going to be giving it to their children to have major roles in dispersing these funds, vis-a-vis -vis basically spending it on random crap, Gucci's, Rolexes, things like that, that essentially all these corrupt autocrats want to purchase. Essentially, this is a way to guilt the West into paying reparations for its success, as well as the past imperial or colonial period, uh, which these nations say, quote-unquote, exploited their lands. This is something that's just like slavery reparations. We should say no. It's unreasonable. It's ridiculous. If we're going to go down this route of paying people for all the things that have gone wrong in the world, everyone's going to be paying everyone until the end of time. It's absolutely ridiculous, and it makes no sense to actually have as government policy. Unfortunately, it seems like this will end up being government policy. It was largely agreed upon at this climate conference, and something that would end up being funded by billions and billions and billions of dollars. And what does it do? We don't even really know. It's not specifically there to fund certain projects which may mitigate the results of climate change, you know, controlling flooding, uh, helping with sustainability of crops, things like that. No, no, what it will do is essentially be a large pot of money that is going to be pilfered by these autocratic rulers instead of actually giving it to the citizens who are supposed to be helped by this sort of process. Another thing that I noticed, at least with respect to this climate conference, is that we now have an even younger climate kid. A younger version, the new and upgraded Greta Thunberg. 
now that she has served a purpose and she's aging out of the quote-unquote not able to argue with demographic, the climate movement needs more radical kids to promote these sorts of ridiculous schemes. This is something that you'll see quite a bit, obviously, um, when there's any sort of radical push for activists, mostly on the left. That's usually where you see radical pushes uh, that are involving children as mascots, but it's happened on the right as well. All this is really meant to do is to make it so that those of us who oppose radical solutions for any of these sorts of problems, whether it's climate change or other things, we can be accused of demeaning children. It's basically a way to manipulate people into thinking that these are unassailable ideas because they're coming out of the mouths of babes. These are super innocent children, and clearly they know more than people who have been studying this issue. Now, given that Greta Thunberg is older, uh, by the way, she's also pushing essentially total communism at this point and the destruction of capitalism as necessary to solve the climate crisis. Those of us who kind of called this one from the beginning, I'm going to pat myself on the back here uh, and show I'm not exactly shocked by this. Clearly, this is where it was going from the beginning. All this is a canard meant to radically change the way that the world works economically. And it's not something that we should allow. But back to Greta's younger uh, antecedents. She is 18 years old now. When she started all this climate change activism, I believe she was in her early teens, maybe 13 or 14. Now they're bringing out new kids that are 10 years old. And of course, if you couldn't criticize a 16 or 17-year-old, you certainly can't criticize the ideas of a 10-year-old. And to make it even better, these 10-year-old kids are mostly from developing nations that are the ones that are harmed by climate change. So what we're seeing is that they're supposedly being the new generation of climate activists. They care so much about this topic. You know, they're stopping going to school. They're doing all these things that are so important for the world because they just care so much about this. I'm, I'm sorry, there is no 10-year-old anywhere in the world who is organically, genuinely an activist for anything. That's just not going to happen. It's not real. 10-year-olds are not someone who is going to be dedicated to the cause of climate change on their own. I've known some pretty precocious kids, and none of them would be interested on their own in becoming global activists for uh, pretty effervescent phenomenon that's just in the air and isn't something that is so concrete that you can actually see it or feel it. And it's completely ridiculous. This is, again, just an attempt at manipulation. And honestly, it's kind of getting sad. Eventually, they're going to be moving back to pre-verbal children, toddlers, to be saying the climate message. And just as now, at that point, I will laugh at it. Of course, some people at this climate conference, mostly the radical activist class, think it did too little. Despite these major agreements on uh, having a climate reparations fund, uh, the fact that they met at all and people were trying to fix this sort of issue, they think it did too little. Because obviously what they want is full compliance. Radicals, by their very nature, always want more. It's kind of that parable of if you give a mouse a cookie, right? That's how it starts, and then it snowballs downhill into something bigger and bigger and bigger every time. And the whole reason for being of someone who's a radical activist 
is to push the most extreme policies. Definitionally, a radical is basically defined relative to other people, right? A radical in the United States in 2022 is very different than a radical in the United States in 1825. Those are not the same thing, although they both would be genuinely considered radical by their times. So, if you're not constantly pushing for more and more and more and new and better and all of that, you're not genuinely radical. Because if someone's going to get to your extreme, then they're the radical, and you're no longer that. So to be able to really even call yourself that, a true activist on the front lines of these things, you need to constantly, constantly be pushing, by very definition, for more and more and more. So they'll never be satisfied no matter what happens. And for me, when people are going to be unsatisfied no matter what happens, uh, as it was with the case with many people with respect to the Dobbs decision, who were pro-life, who were seeking the overturn of Roe v. Wade for years and years and decades and decades, uh, now don't think it's enough or didn't really do, you know, weren't very happy about it because it didn't go so far as to outlaw abortion across the whole country. That's a radical. Those are people who are never going to be happy unless they get every single thing that they want. And those are not people who should be driving our policy. In this case, the climate activists say that the conference missed its chance to be ambitious and to leave fossil fuels in the ground. Mostly they've blamed this on things like the Ukraine war, rising global inflation, uh, problems with price levels and supply chains, things like that. This is truly one of the funniest things about what they're saying. They're essentially saying that the real world is stopping them from getting the utopia that they're trying to hope for and push for with these crazy climate policies. Is anyone really surprised that the real world is making it impossible to have a utopia? Because that's essentially been something that has been argued over by thinkers and writers for centuries. And I'm firmly on the side of un-utopianism, non-utopianism. Uh, there is no utopia. There is no perfection. All we can do is improve things as much as we can. But these people obviously always will make the perfect the enemy of the good. And instead of taking a win where they so clearly got it, they're going to yell at the politicians and think that they're not doing enough and need to be held accountable, as one of the climate 10-year-olds said. President Biden was there, did make a brief speech, and he did make some commitments on behalf of the United States. But as, as any sort of executive arrangement, these are completely unenforceable and may be illegal. Treaties, international treaties, need to go through the Senate, and spending needs to go through Congress generally. The reparations fund is especially galling, and if the administration really does try to force through spending on that, it should be firmly smacked down by Congress. There should be no way to take money from one agency, shift it over to another one, uh, and pay for this sort of fund without direct congressional authorization. Unfortunately, that seems like something that many administrations are starting to do now. Uh, we did see that in the Trump administration, taking money from a certain defense project and using it to fund construction of a border wall, which was unconstitutional. This would be similarly unconstitutional on behalf of President Biden. And generally, the whole idea of these sorts of international conferences on, on you know issues like climate change, the whole idea really gets under my skin. It bothers me. It's basically intended, almost purposely, to do an end-around around actual 
democratic processes within sovereign nations. It is a removal of sovereignty in a very certain way. Uh, by basically reducing the political program of a nation, the choice on spending, the choice on how to allocate funds, taxation, things like that, regulations, these are things that are properly decided by a nation itself, not decided by an international body that is not representative whatsoever. The end results of these conferences are always basically entirely non-binding documents. The very famous Paris Climate Accord that has been lionized by liberals and which the Biden administration rejoined with great fanfare on their first day in office, is entirely non-binding. None of these countries are actually going to be living up to their promises that they made. They made promises, and they're just going to do whatever they want, as we've seen with China, who has continually built out new coal-fired power plants, even though they said they would not be doing much of that going forward. These are non-binding documents, and they're totally useless. They're useless for other countries, and they're useless for us. With respect to things like climate change especially, uh, another, another issue with respect to treaties is the JCPOA, the Iran deal. Those are executive agreements. Those are not binding treaties, and they would never be binding treaties unless they are ratified by two-thirds of the Senate, as the process in the Constitution lays out. This is not going to happen. Two-thirds of the Senate won't agree on anything, much less on a controversial agreement like the climate one or the JCPOA. All of this is totally a fool's errand. Trying to create international agreements on climate change, things like that, it doesn't make any sense to do. Yes, this is a collective action problem. Yes, this is something that does require international buy-in. But the problem is none of these countries that are going here and doing these things, except for those in the West, actually care. They're not actually going to do any of this stuff that they're promising to do. In fact, you could see this in the negotiations. Clearly, many of these developing nations wanted their climate reparations, but they didn't actually want to cease using fossil fuels. They just wanted both ways. And unfortunately, many in the West are totally falling for this. As we're seeing now, the Dutch government, because of EU rules on nitrogen, are actually purchasing up several thousand farms, compulsory purchasing. Uh, this is not something that the farmers are able to say anything about. And then they're just shutting them down. It's completely ridiculous that people have bought so hard into these radical policies, when clearly so much of the rest of the world doesn't care at all. This should not be a priority of any sort of sane administration. To put this in the front of your foreign policy when there's so many other issues happening around the world is just completely bananas to me. And, as is always, I am going to be let down by the United States administration with respect to these international quote-unquote deals. And that's okay. I'm going to keep ranting against them anyway. And that is it for this foreign telegram for November 2022, episode 7 of the Rational Policy Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I very much appreciate it. Be sure to check me out on Twitter at RATLPolicy. I'm pretty responsive on there, so be sure to tweet at me, share things with me that you think might be interesting. All the links that I've uh, spoken about and the stories will be included in show notes post on my blog at rationalpolicy.com. Be sure to check that out for other articles, uh, which I've posted recently, as well as that they're coming in the next week or so. I may have some other things coming out as well at other outlets, but I'm not sure about that yet. I'll be sure to keep everyone posted. But please, if you have the chance, leave us a review, a rating, five stars on Apple, 
on Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe there and tell your friends and family about the show too if you think they'd get something good out of it. Again, thank you so much for joining me. I am your host, Mike Cote. This is the Rational Policy Podcast, Episode 7. We'll see you next time. Cheers. Cheers.